Here's your almanac for tilling the cultural soil with the conversations we plan with humor, faith, and wisdom. Here's your hosts, Dr. Peter Kapsner, Carmen LeBurge, and I'm Nat. Welcome to The Till. Hey, welcome back to The Till. I am in studio with Peter Kapsner and Nat Becker. Hello, gentlemen. Great to have you in studio here, Carmen, instead of doing this thing over Zoom or whatever technological medium we use. I know, all this technological wizardry, but it's wonderful to be here. I don't know if we're allowed to talk about wizard, wizardry on a Christian program. Are yeah, we? you know, that's always the big question when I bring it up in class. Like, it's, it is far more controversial when I bring up something about Harry Potter than it is when I bring up, like, something about Calvinism and Armenianism. I mean, they just don't even care anymore about the other stuff. But Harry Potter divides the class down the middle. It's really? awesome. Really? Oh, awesome. Are there, like, some people who are, like, Harry Potter is okay and other people who are, like, if you have read Harry Potter or seen the movies, then sure. you are of the devil and possibly going to hell? Absolutely for sure. Yep, there's really? no question. Yeah, really? you, you can see it. I would say that the percentage of that is that extreme <laughs> on their position about Harry Potter is a little bit lower than 50. But there's certainly, I would say a split about, I don't think we should be doing this versus those are like, hey, these are some of the best stories ever. So I interviewed a former witch once. This has nothing to do with today's program. No, it doesn't but at all. <clears throat> I interviewed a former witch once on my show. Yeah. And I would definitely say that her concern was that any any messing around at all with the occult opens the door. And so for her, I mean, even like dream catchers are, really? uh, let alone something like, uh, now I wouldn't, I, I didn't actually ask her directly about the whole Harry Potter phenomenon. We talked about programming that is, you know, based on witchcraft and those kinds of things and the gross growth of witchcraft and Wicca in particular in yeah. America and those kinds of things. Um, but we talked about the occult and the reality of it. And I, I think there are a lot of people who don't know what they are beginning to dabble in one, one what they are beginning to mess with yeah. when we start talking about those things. So anyway, Matt? yeah. Well, hmm, hmm. Harry Potter, uh, yes or no? Uh, I'm in. Those are some of the most delightful books that I read. Uh, I finished I won high an school. owl. Mm-hmm. I know, right? Mm-hmm. I finished I mean, high school and like an read through them all. Yeah. yeah. And that's how, and it was, it was lovely. But you know, there's got to be a line somewhere between the occult and um, a setting for, uh, you know, a, a series of children. So, and I get they're a little dark, maybe, especially towards the end. Yeah. This would make a great uh, till episode at some point in time to cover. I mean, (laughs) instead we're talking about we're talking about Christmas. We are talking about it's Christmas time, isn't it? It's almost Christmas. Well, close enough. Well, is it? I mean, is there such a thing as close enough to Christmas? Uh, well, there's there's a thing about being too far away, like right well, where it's always winter okay, and never Christmas. And that's so true. now we would talk about Narnia, and that would also be a conversation about magic and magical fanciful creatures. Another set of and, my favorite seven books. Okay, yep, for and sure. somehow uh, that's not bad. It's really interesting, isn't it? Right. I mean, mm-hmm. in the in the whole Christian conversation, mm-hmm. Narnia is not bad, and yet, hello, talking animals, turning people. I mean, there's a witch, the White Witch. She's a character. Right. Like, there's witchcraft. But it's written by C.S. Lewis, so it's an immediate like wash. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's a pass. I don't want to go down this rabbit hole right now because we could be there for the rest of this episode. <laughs> that's the only thing. Be, that's the only reason why I'm holding my that tongue. That would be right Alice now. in Wonderland, and that's a whole nother conversation. <laughs> we have like Lewis an entire Carroll, month of episodes. Lewis Carroll was prescient. There's no question. Have yeah. you read it recently? I have not actually. A movie coming out, something about it that I wanted to see. So I, I, it seems like I need to get back into it again. Everyone who's listening right now, if you have not actually recently read Alice in Wonderland, I highly recommend it. It is. It, it is today revealed. 
Really? Absolutely. I do need to read this again. Absolutely. We have gone down the rabbit hole in our culture. So, Words do not mean what you think they mean. Uh, down is up, up is down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is okay. absolutely yep. where we are now culturally living. <clears throat> yeah, I can see that. Now, like the bits that I remember from the story, I can totally see how that would be prescient for today. Clearly being in studio together is profitable for us. Um, however, maybe not as profitable for you who are listening. Right, because it is Christmas, as you said a second ago. <laughs> <laughs> so we probably should get to the actual well, content for today. What we talked about talking about today, yeah, um, was was Christmas. Mm-hmm. Uh, we thought that it would be a good day to talk about Christmas, and so now I'm skipping over our first few pages of notes for today um, because I'm actually dropping down to this no this notion that it's Christ Mass. Yeah. So mm-hmm. where Jesus is both the guest we welcome and the host uh, of the meal. Talk with us, uh, Peter, about your experiences. Um, either with Mass and, yeah. and or the Lord's Supper, because this is Christ, Christ Mass yeah. is what this is supposed to be about. Yeah, I love that. I, kind of a long and um, somewhat winding journey with Mass, with communion as the center of Mass. I grew up in a Catholic environment. My parents were definitely raised Catholic, and for the first uh, several years of my life, and especially in a Catholic school that I went to, we had Mass every Wednesday. And what I was struck by in that time is that the center of the mass service is not the same thing that we might have as a center of a Protestant Sunday morning service. The center of the service is the partaking of the host. It is communion. That's how the church had been even for 1,500 years before the Protestant Reformation, where they sort of slid the communion table out of the center of service, and they replaced it with the pulpit and sola scriptura, meaning scripture alone, and we needed to make sure that we always faithfully preached the scriptures. And that's a beautiful heritage. I think that's really important. But... In so doing, we sort of moved communion in many Protestant settings to a once a month, we do it just kind of out of obedience, kind of jam it into the first Sunday of the month uh, service. It's no longer the center of the table. And so my experience growing up was communion was sort of the heart of the faith. And then for about maybe 15 years or so, the sermon became the heart of the service. Like it simply wasn't a church service unless there was a sermon and everything revolved around the preaching of the word. And again, I am all on board with that idea, but it wasn't until maybe, let's see, I was probably about 30, 32 years old. So maybe 16, 17 years ago that I was on a staff at a church where one of my pastoral leads on the community life team that I was a part of, there was nine of us on the pastoral staff. And she, um, she was one of the two leads of our staff And she said, you know, whatever else we do in church moving forward, we want to make sure that we have communion every week. And I thought, that sounds crazy. What are you even talking about right now? How are we going to have time for that? Well, exactly. I mean, you know, and I was mostly worried about dropping the grape juice tray as it went by, right? I mean, I just thought, oh, if I can at least get it to the next person, what are you talking about? What is the importance of communion? And so from there, it's really morphed to the point that in our family with Hallie and me and our kids, that has become central. And the reason being to sort of wrap up a longer story, there's definitely more we could get into on this, is that uh, I ended up doing in my PhD research a whole chapter on sort of early Christian initiation rituals. And it was the threefold initiation ritual of baptism, followed by communion, followed by Eucharist or going to the table. And they all happen in the same day for somebody. And the welcoming at the table is the idea that when we drink of the bread and the wine, it's not just mere symbol. It's maybe not what it was for me in the Catholic Church growing up where it actually turns into the body and blood of Christ. But when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, he's not saying, remember back to an event and somehow like stir yourself up to be grateful for the fact that I died on the cross. The Jewish concept of remembrance is the idea that all of the power 
that was present in the past is once again made possible within our present reality. So to remember is to call the power of the past into the present, and once again, freedom from sin, once again, the the communion of the saints, all of it is actually present at that table, and it's meant to be a very powerful moment of bonding with one another and bonding with the Savior who set us free, that he's actually at the table with us in those moments. It's not just a symbol of the past. He's actually present once again. It's a powerful reality that I've experienced quite a bit over the last 10 years uh, at the communion table. So now I'm going to ask you this question in just a moment, but there's a couple of things that Peter said that I just want to reflect on here. Um, so when we when we use the word remember, mm-hmm. uh, I, re- I remember, I recall, maybe I should say it that way, I recall um, someone uh, once saying that to remember in this particular context is to become a member again of That's the first point. experience. So to remember is to become a member again of that first community that first uh, received the bread and yeah. the cup that first sat with the Lord at his table that you know that first received him as the host that was first there as the guest it's to become a member again of that event and then um you know i think it's also important just for us to acknowledge there is also this forward looking aspect mm-hmm, sure. to the christ mass there is a meal that we will one day share together in the kingdom of heaven um it, it there is a seat saved for each one of us jesus is the host the meal is prepared i mean that is so exciting and i long to share it together with with christians from every time and place yeah. uh, and every generation under heaven and that is the membership that matters when we talk about the church. Absolutely. You know, there are um, expressions of it here and now, and they're important and it's an essential part of our life. But the membership is about being a member of the body of Christ that is going to live, you know, forever in his presence in fellowship with one another in the kingdom of heaven. Yeah. And so, um, Nat, yeah, let's pivot to you. Just talk with us a little bit about your experiences of we're going to use the word mass, even though for those of us that have never been Catholic, um, that word is is complex. Um, but there is this celebration of the Lord's Supper um, or the Eucharist. Well, to start with, I grew up in a Catholic country predominantly in, mm. back in Poland. And so, right, like I've been a handful of times to, to mass, particularly around Christmas and stuff, um, because, you know, sort of culturally there you you are catholic if you are polish sort of is how it works um and and it's interesting it, it is different uh we do at our, at our current church celebrate or, or take communion um more than once a month which i thought was interesting and it's the first time i've ever i'd ever seen this really happen but uh i do I do resonate sort of with the idea of it bringing, I've always taken it as something that really brings a focal point to us all there. The congregation being this like, okay, you know, this is really sort of what, you know, our faith is uh, brought around. And so in partaking this together as a community, it's something that ties us together. Now I'm not really sure I understand it, but, um, you know, that's sort of. It's the communion of the saints. It's literally what's happening. Exactly. It's the common union communion. It's the common union that you're experiencing with other believers in that moment and that Christ is being made known among you in the breaking of the bread. It's exactly the way it's supposed to happen. Okay, so um, on Christmas, yeah, uh, talk with me about <clears throat> your 
worship experiences, good, bad, and ugly. Because hmm. in my family, man, we have the good, bad, and ugly well, list. In I would love for you to like, start. Yeah, yeah, do that. So, so let's just turn the question back to you because I mean, <laughs> you have some energy about this one. So I want to, <laughs> I want to hear the good, bad, and the ugly does right every, here. Does not everyone have good, bad, and ugly experiences I from we, Christmas Eve? I think we do. Yours from like the, the South. I, there's something, there's something super intriguing to me <laughs> as somebody who grew up and has only been in Minnesota. I mean, obviously I've lived abroad and been to places, but I know nothing well, about Southern me, culture. With let this, me just so. go ahead and confess to you that in some places worship is done poorly. This, and, is that true? And some, and some, no. and sometimes it's done <laughs> the most poorly on what should be, yeah, uh, the, the the most well done of days. The okay. day, the days when you're going public, right? So, yeah. I mean, the culture is coming to church on Christmas and Easter. And this is, I mean, so, and when I was on pastoral staff, this like you, this is one of two opportunities as you reference for priesters to get yeah, the priesters totally. And Christmas so you couldn't and mess Christians. up on this deal. Yeah, you should right. not okay. mess. These should so. You have to you have to think that whatever resources a local congregation has, they are being expended <laughs> no, on right. Christmas and Easter, <laughs> right? Sure. And yep. so, my uh, my uh, the part of the story sort of begins in tragedy. My dad died when I was in high school. Mm-hmm. I remember that. And so, um, uh, although going to worship together on Christmas Eve is always just this really really high priority for my family, mm-hmm. um, we were often not at home on Christmas Eve, uh, Christmas, because for my mom, it was better to be away Mm. than to sort of have to suffer the experience of the empty chair, what we still call the empty chair, right? So, you know, so we went to Disney World our first year, right? Well, let me just say that there's not a lot of Christmas Eve worship going on at (laughs) Disney World. (laughs) But the light show is fantastic. Exactly, exactly. And and so you go, uh, you know, you go to a local congregation and anything might happen. So... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Over the subsequent years, we we went to any number of churches on Christmas Eve, wherever we happened to be, and whatever church happened to be open at the hour that, you know, we were driving through whatever little town it was, and hey, it's 11, who's having a service? Okay. Because my mom is so kind of So you wanted a, to go to like the, the My mom is midnight. kind of the midnight, yeah, yeah like okay. she really likes okay. to do the late night thing. Yeah. So we went to an Episcopal uh, church mm-hmm. once where we were nearly like gassed out by the like <laughs> the fumes of the incense. Yeah. Because by the way, if you're visitors and you're, you know, pretty well dressed and you're there on Christmas Eve, you get marched to the very front. They have saved you seats in the front row. Yeah. In almost every congregation they we've been get in. You saved. First or second <laughs> yeah. row, right? Because sure. you are the creasters. Yeah, for what sure. they don't know is we're really committed Christians <laughs> and we're so committed to us <laughs> anyway. So um so we had the well, overwhelming experience of the <clears throat> of the incense in an Episcopal church. But my the the memory that stands out in my mind is this little rural congregation in northeast Georgia. Um and uh let's just say that what is supposed to be used as plastic yard art was the nativity uh, was the crush scene placed at the front of the sanctuary. And you know how the light bulb goes inside of each one of those in the, yes. in the front yard? Yes. Well, if you put that on a dimmer switch, Jesus can pulsate into <laughs> oh, the service. No. He can, as the as the choir is singing badly, Jesus can pulsate into life oh. as you as you raise and lower the dimmer switch on that no. light bulb. And what is this happening? This can't be real. This so, is real. Okay, what is happening to the two of you was happening simultaneously to my sister and I, who oh. were seated next to one another, and my poor mom is horrified because my sister and I were not laughing out loud, but we have we are laughing into our hands. And so the 
parents. And you have a front row seat for this front thing? Row. So pulsating so Jesus is pulsating right in front Jesus of you? Pulsating Jesus is right in front oh of us. And there's gosh. no hiding the fact that we are now laughing so hard, we are rocking the pew. It's a pew <laughs> that they have placed there. It's not actually attached to the floor. It's like an extra front row oh pew. Gosh. And we have that whole thing rocking back and forth because we're laughing so hard. And anyway, that is the maybe most memorable Christ Mass wow. that Christmas is as good as service. I heard. Uh, I have ever experienced. I, Nat, I have nothing that even comes close to something like that. <laughs> Absolutely so If nothing. I could rewind and attend that service and get back <laughs> into some time machine, I would love to see that. I mean, you're talking like statuettes you buy off of eBay, right? You know, like little small plastic figurines kind of thing. Okay, they're not they're not small. Oh, um, so they're, they're, <laughs> they're like life size, oh, and no. you put like so a light. Jesus is, is big. Oh, you're kidding! You know, and he's in a manger. His little plastic manger. It's it's yard art. It's designed <laughs> oh, for the yard. Gosh. Is this not it's a thing? Oh, uh, totally. Uh, yeah, okay. I have one in my yard. Yeah, thank you, Matt. Oh, Matt, Matt. bail me out here. Yeah, so I mean, it's you, not quite lifelike. It's like one to two scale. Yeah, but they're big, and know, you put a light bulb in yeah. it so that and it's lit up. And if it was up. flashing, oh boy, you would notice. Right? Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, I have nothing like that. My, my stories growing up revolved around the fact that I think my family didn't like the commercialization aspect, and so mm. they sort of got out of Dodge. I think they also... My dad has uh, nine bro- or eight brothers and sisters, so a very large family. My mom has four sisters, and so the holidays get to be really complicated, I think, in terms of the number of people that you're seeing. And my parents, when they became protesters, when they became Protestant, <laughs> when they were protesting, <laughs> they didn't even know what they were pro- You know, I didn't know what I was protesting. Suddenly I was wearing baby blue uniforms but couldn't take communion at Mass because I was a protester. And uh, when they did that, they kind of ended up the black sheep of the family, along Mm. with my dad's only sister, who also converted to Protestantism, which is really unfortunate. I mean, I think we forget, don't we, how serious the divide between Catholicism and Protestantism was? Mm -hmm. I mean, the original confirmation of the Protestants was to make sure your faith was secure against the hated Catholics and vice versa. Wow. And my parents grew up in that era, so they wanted to get out of Dodge for a number of reasons in Christmas. So I spent most of my Christmases traveling. We just went to oh. warm places. We went to the Virgin Islands one year. We went to San Diego, I think. We went to Florida on several occasions. Was there occasions. a particular celebration of the Virgin Mary in the Virgin Islands? Well, Does I, that I, have anything I, to do I, with you know, it? I, no? I don't think so. I don't know why they're named as such. So I did not see anything down there. But we literally, like, we didn't have lights or a tree or presents or uh, anything along those lines. So hmm. um, I kind of, my mom is funny now. She's in her late 70s, and now she's all about Christmas. And we never had wow. it growing up. So. I would, I'll have to ask her here during this holiday season, yeah. when, did, when did you change from humbug? Because we used to call her Scrooge and humbug all the time around Christmas. When did you wow. change from that to the posture that you currently have in terms of trees and stuff? So, Was her concern that Christmas was not focused on Christ? I think that it was those two things. It was the commercialization piece and it was the just the family dynamics were tricky. So those two right. things, I think, always caused potentially both a bit of pain and a bit of sort of cynicism around it. And without being sort of first-generation believers in some ways, they maybe didn't have the background to know what to do in its place. Mm -hmm. And so they just sort of got out of Dodge in those moments. Um, Yeah, so we have certainly, as a family now, we celebrate really robustly. Hallie, my wife, comes from a very long line of uh, Christmas tradition stuff, but uh, nothing along the lines of what you're talking about. Uh, I think the one thing that I would say and and add is that um, I love Christmas music. Just love it. And O Come All Ye Faithful makes me cry every time I hear it. And and so does O Holy Night. And there's mixed points of view about whether you should listen to Christmas music during Advent 
or whether you oh, should wait until the Christ child is born and then listen in the, the, the next 12, 12 days. days. Exactly. 12 and days I, is not enough time. I, that's where I fall. And so I've done both. And because I love Christmas music so much, I can't do it if it's November. But by the time we get into like the first week in December, I'm all in for the Christmas music. I've, I've modified my stance. Okay. In like the last five minutes or is this a new? new no, no. You? Within like the last, you know, 360 days. Oh, oh, oh okay. Come first snow or the end of Thanksgiving is when it's appropriate to start playing Christmas music. Mm. So, you know, that ends up being early here. That's a very northern, western, western. uh, Oh, 100%. Northern (laughs) view of things. It's tied to The people in Australia are allowed to listen to Christmas music before the first snow. Yeah. Because otherwise they're going to never hear it. Well, and I found uh, surprisingly that the United Kingdom and Scotland does not actually uh, celebrate Thanksgiving. Who knew, right? right. Was, well, it's in, our holiday, isn't I it? I know. And so I was in Scotland this last time for Thanksgiving and they were playing Christmas music <laughs> and I, now I was confused because we hadn't celebrated and we didn't celebrate Thanksgiving this year, but Christmas was in full swing late November in Scotland for sure. We should totally talk about um, some of the different practices yes. around the world in terms of Christmas. And and I would love to have the conversation about uh, a little bit of a return to the conversation about keeping Christ at the center of it. Yeah. Um, because I think that that's a challenge for everyone. I think it is how, too. how do we keep Christ at the center of Christmas in a culture that has largely co-opted Christmas mm-hmm. as a commercial holiday? Um, lots of people think they're celebrating Christmas. They're certainly not celebrating Christ. Right. Um, and what does that, you know, what does that look like for, for us as believers in this generation? Uh, maybe we, maybe we hold that conversation um, off for just a moment and wrap this portion of the conversation up. Um, maybe not with a neat, tidy bow. Sure. Right. But um, circling back around just briefly to the conversation about mass, mm-hmm. I do think that a conversation piece that each and every person listening could have with other people is the three letters at the end of the word Christmas. Like what is it about Christmas that is still a mass? What is, what is the Christ mass? um, And what does it mean to both be a guest of Christ and a host of those who might gather unto him in this season? Because we, we do both. We function in both ways now. Um, You know, and, and for our family, one of the, one of the things that we try to say out loud to one another, particularly when we're going to be in a public setting, um, is may Christ be made known to mm. others mm. in the way we break the bread. Yeah. And so at our holiday tables, this encouragement to to break bread together in such a way, in such a spirit, that Christ would be made known to others. And I think what's really important about that, Carmen, too, you referenced the commercialization of Christmas, too. I think there's there's a subtlety that we, sh- we can get into as well is that this isn't also only just celebrating family. I mean, there can be some people say we don't want to do the whole commercialization thing. We just want to celebrate family. And yes, we do. But the family still needs to point to something bigger. And the, the family needs to point to Christ being at the center of that celebration. You know that you're listening to Till, but if you have any thoughts, we'd love to hear from you. Shoot us an email at thoughts at thetillpodcast.com, and we'll continue to give you farming illusions in context of Christianity and our culture today. 
Welcome back to The Till. We are having our special Christmas episode here today that is airing just before Christmas here with Carmen LeBurge and Nat Becker. I'm Peter Kapsner and glad to be part of this. Let's uh, transition the conversation away from sort of the idea of Christmas and the mass at the center to even just some of the, the practical things. We were talking a little bit about songs before Christmas and whether we should listen beforehand or afterwards or any practice there in between. But I'd be curious. Uh, Nat, let's start with you, actually. Are there any Christmas songs that you say, you know, here's the deal. It's Christmas time. This is song A. I've got to be able to hear this song at some point in the lead up to Christmas. Is there one particular song that you just say, this is this is the one? I, this isn't a particularly holy song, but I wake up in the morning with my alarm clock set to the Charlie Brown like Christmas theme. Oh, but when I mean when Linus steps out in that in that story and he he reads from the Gospel of Mark, the right? Christmas story, right? Or Luke, whichever one it is. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it is off the hook. But you're you're saying you wake up to the Peanuts theme song? Yeah. Well, not there. It's the Christmas right. Dun, right. Dun, dun, dun. You yeah. might need to find that and get that get that playing underpinning. What uh, Carmen? Do you have actual <laughs> Christmas? <laughs> yeah, I love that though. Now, I mean, is there? But is there a Christmas song that you grew so up? So I with? have several. So when you said what what sort of makes it Christmas for you, Oh Holy Night, yeah, uh, is probably tops my list. But when I was um, thinking about having this conversation, there are some Christmas hymns that, for me, tell the story in the context of the hymn, and so I find them to be a real blessing. Um, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Yeah, right. And then Angels We Have Heard on High. Like, both of those, for me, take me to the whole scene with mm. the shepherds on the hill and that whole unfolding um, event. Mary, did you know? Yeah. Um, for me, is uh, is one of those more contemporary hymns, um, but asks a really provocative question about the experience mm-hmm. that Mary had, and mm. you know, and certainly, um, you know, she knew what she knew, and she knew what the angel Gabriel told her, um, but there was much that she didn't know, and she pondered a lot throughout her life, right? Yeah. Um, you know, so those would be um, some that come to mind, but but you know, O come, O come, Emmanuel. Mm. Is for me the Advent song, yeah. That is this invitational one, and capitalizes on the God with us mm-hmm. reality. God is going to come and dwell with us. That yeah. is who Emmanuel is. Hmm. We uh, during our Advent practice as a family, we try to gather together at least three or four nights a week with the kids and just do some readings from scripture, some of the prophecies, some of the things from the shepherds, some of the things from the angelic choir. But uh, we do try to end each time with O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, as sort of this Advent song and ransom captive Israel and that mourns and lonely exile here. And I think we can all connect with that idea of the need to be ransomed from. I mean, we do live where the power of sin and death has been defeated, but it hasn't been in its completion, that the power has been defeated, but we still are subject to it until, as you referenced earlier in this episode, the idea of the beautiful wedding supper of the Lamb that's going to happen at the end of all things. And so when we sing O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, I think we can both sing it in the same spirit that Israel was crying out for a Savior, but we can also sing it as part of Advent, waiting for the Savior to come again. It is really a powerful song that invites Jesus into the midst of the presence, which one of your questions from the first half of this episode is how do we keep Jesus at the center? That can be just a really tangible way to do that. So, Nat, did you know that the very first time that Handel's Messiah, which is often sung, I mean, Friedrich mm-hmm. Handel, you know, composed it um, as an Easter offering. But um, did you know that the very first time that it was shared on a stage um, in Dublin was as a benefit concert to ransom 
people mm. who were in debtor's prison. That really? is fabulous. And wow. they raised the equivalent of, I was going to see if I could find the number here. They raised the equivalent of something like $180,000. And um, and they they set free hundreds of people in debtor's prison that night. Mm. Wow. That is a, I mean... When we talk about, you know, ransoming, yeah. ransom, mm-hmm. I can't say I know it. this. It's really, I, I struggled with that one too. Ransom captive Israel, right? Yes. yes you're right. How, why is it so easy to sing and so hard to say? I, exactly. And even harder to live. <laughs> it is. Ooh. But, you know, when Jesus declares the year of Jubilee, when he says, uh, when he sits down in the synagogue in Luke, the fourth chapter, and says that I've come to free the captives and recover your sight to the blind and uh, that the oppressed again would be free and declare that now is the year of Jubilee, that at the end of every 50 years, Israel had a practice where they simply gave back whatever was owed to them to the people to whom they were in debt. And this mm-hmm. beautiful year of Jubilee is really practiced in this idea of the ransoming kind of thing. And, and I didn't realize that the Messiah, Handel's Messiah was part of that. The origin of that story was, was Isn't that around so cool? that. It is really That's cool. so beautiful. That was one of my favorite moments back when we still had choirs in churches. Okay, is in the a, South, we still have choirs oh, and so churches. You, well, so that it's is really, not a past into reality. Uh, okay, well, part of the see, world, I need to just drive South. Yeah, I need absolutely. to drive South, and experience, south. and experience absolutely. blinking Jesuses and, and, uh, and choirs. Pulsating. We like, Pulsa- the, pulsating. We like the concept of a pulsating so, Jesus. But when the, when the choir would stand up and sing Messiah, uh, Handel's Messiah, oh my gosh, it just reduced me to tears even as a child. And I know that that was often uh, at Easter, maybe for our church more than Christmas, but still, same idea. I think, is, is, and, and Nat, do you have the Peanuts Christmas song called up yet? Have you found this thing? I don't know that I have the rights to play that. Oh, you don't. Uh, oh, well, can you can, can you, you like can hum, you hum it? it? <laughs> <laughs> Carmen and I are thinking along the same lines there. I've practiced your humming. We're coming back to you in just a minute here. Oh, no. Maybe he has thought of another song I he know. would like to introduce. Uh, well, we could definitely do. Do you have another one? Because okay. I would love to talk about Oh Holy Night too. Well, um, oh, I have I have half a thought on um, <laughs> Mary. Did you know? Yeah. yeah All right. Yeah. So it wasn't until like two years ago that I could like, listen through the song. Because at some point in my childhood, my dad like burned a CD for me, like back when I had like the little CD player that was the size of a CD. And it was like all my favorite Christmas music. And that one was, I don't know, I think is track number eight. And just the version we had was like a really uh, sort of like minor key. Well, I feel like all of them are. Um, but it just like terrified me in the night as a kid. Like it was just too like sad sounding of a song. Like I don't know that I really grasped any of the concepts of it, but like just freaked me out so I skipped it for years so it wasn't until like I moved away from home and like made it to college before I could like listen through the whole song and I was like wow this is a beautiful song so it's now moved up like are either of you familiar with um Michael Card's Joseph song I believe I've heard it but I wouldn't be able to to quote any of it so I would say it's the complimentary right it's the it's the complimentary question Hmm. where Joseph is holding the infant Jesus and there's like this, who are you yeah. and what in the world am I going to do now? Um, and uh, when Michael Card talks about that song, um, he talks about uh, being in the hospital when his brother held mm. his child for the first time. And Michael Card remembering sort of observing his brother and and just the awesome responsibility of the sacred trust of a child. Wow. Um, so, yeah. Peter, you're the only person in the room who has experienced this <laughs> in terms of, right, like holding yeah. in your hands for the very first time your child yeah. um, as an infant. 
you know, pick one, not necessarily your favorite one. Just pick, uh, pick. You don't have favorite children, <laughs> yes, Carmen. Okay, that's right. They're all my favorite. Yeah, right. Is what Thank my you. husband has six kids, and he's like, they're all my favorite. Yeah, I'm yeah, like, mm-hmm. yeah. He's right. So, um, so talk about uh, hmm. since they're all your favorite. Just the experience <laughs> that comes to mind when when I describe okay, holding holding that child in your hands for the very first time. Yeah, it's you know. And each one was different, and I think partially it was simply because I was in different stages in life. I mean, having five kids over 12, 13 years, you just you experience it differently. And so I think as a father, so, there is some things about, gosh, what a sacred responsibility this is to do I have what it takes to help raise this child, and, and what will it take? Because honestly, I don't have any idea, and, and no matter what they say about parent strategy books— you know, it's mostly trial and error. Those only cover maybe one minute out of a 24-hour day as any tip in a book. And and so uh, that there was that responsibility piece of it. I would say as I got older and had more kids, there was sort of just this, maybe that some of that had been resolved in me. It was like, no, I guess we can raise kids. It's tricky. It's hard. Uh, but we at least know how to, ch- at least I do now know how to change a diaper. And I know how to shovel some stage two baby food into them, you know, and some of these sorts of things uh, <laughs> that it just got to be this wonderful place of joy and sort of love and like possibility. And oh my word, this is an actual new life that mm-hmm. if things go as they usually do, will probably outlive me. And will they be part of the story that I find myself in, which is God's redemptive story and, and a little part that I play, here's the potential future of that story. And there's just so many emotions that go into it. It's hard to describe on, on those pieces of it. But I think, um, I, heard, I don't know if it was a theologian or a pastor I heard at one point that said, you know, when you look at the face of a newborn baby, it's as close as we're going to get to looking at the face of God in this world because there's just this sort of new purity that's happening. And certainly the shadows of sin exist in our, we are in the shadow lands, as C.S. Lewis says, but there is something just about the bright-eyed reality of this little child coming out that is so – you get a little taste of the potential and the wonder for which we're meant in those moments like that. So it's, it's quite an experience for sure. So when I consider the experience of, uh, you know, of Mary and Joseph, um, they knew more about the child whom they were going to receive yeah. and raise yep. than most parents know, right? However – Everyone knows that every child was conceived first in the heart of God before mm-hmm. the foundations of the earth. Like this is a this is a little person who belongs to God, fearfully right. and wonderfully right. made, knit on purpose and for a purpose by him in his mother's womb. Um, and, you know, and in the story of Jesus, we we get more right than we get in the stories of a lot of us in terms of like somebody spoke a prophecy over you when right. you were an infant or right. um because for for Mary and Joseph we get not only um the unique experience that each of them has with the angel Gabriel Mary face to face and Joseph right. in the context of a dream but then we also get um the experience that they have when the heavenly host makes all this noise on the night of Jesus's birth. I mean, right. And then these shepherds show up totally, uh, right? They mm-hmm. didn't, Mary and Joseph didn't announce anything. Um, and so they come and they're like, we have found the baby that was announced to us by the angels. And um, there, there's something going on there. That would yeah. be a lot to experience, right? And then fast, <laughs> amount, yes. fast, and then fast forward just a little bit in the story. And we have the presentation of Jesus in the temple and we have Simeon. Yeah saying what he says about Jesus, like, 
you know, I can now, I can now go. You, your servant can now depart in peace. I have now seen the salvation of your people, right. and it's going to be extended to the Gentiles as well. Like they, they hear all of this. They have this experience of all of this being spoken of over their child. Uh, Anna then echoes that, and in a similar um, statement. And then we have the visit of the Magi. Mm-hmm. You know, and these are guys who have been waiting since the days of Daniel. Which is phenomenal, right? That Daniel rose to be a chief magi and therefore could move from generation to generation the tradition of reading the stars. I mean, that's something we just don't talk about in in our biblical text. But yes, keep going. It's amazing when they show up. Right. So they show up and they are hearkening back hundreds of years at this point, thousands of years, you know, from a context that was not Jewish. No, exactly. But they, too, are awaiting the Lord's Messiah. And they believe, having followed the natal star, that this is the boy. Right. And so Mary and Joseph have this confirmation, probably, you know, some 12, 18 months on um, in the life of Jesus. And they they bring them gifts that clearly provide for them in Egypt. And and clearly then, um, you know, Mary saves for years because those are probably the spices that she uses um, in in preparing his body, like right, there's a lot. Well, going that's just. On there. I think that's something we don't talk about much. Is Gold, that, frankincense, and myrrh. exactly, mm-hmm. and that myrrh specifically is a spice used uh, for burial, or, or yeah. you know. And so there was. It just makes me wonder: Did they know what they were signing up for? That their king, that many people in the nation missed as being the king because he didn't overthrow the Roman Empire. When right from the beginning, they're signing up for a king who's going to die. And did they see the symbolism of that, right? Did they know that this is the kind of king he was going to be? When the angel says to Mary, you know, he's going to sit on the on the throne of his father David right. forever, she is probably thinking earthly king. Of course. But the pondering that Mary does in her heart, you know, when Simeon says this sword is going to strike your own soul as well, she yep. ponders it in her heart. Um, when the wise men show up with gold and frankincense and myrrh, yeah. you know, there's got to be some pondering there. Yeah, you would think that at the very least, like, what is happening here? Maybe this isn't uh, about the idea of bringing gifts just for a uh, savior. Okay, guys, where do you want to head next? Well, okay, I have one last thought. No, yeah, and, and I'd love to cover th- a little bit about Oh Holy Night too, because that's well, that one is you know one of the I don't that's yours and my favorite. Sounds like Carmen, but go ahead, Nat. I just from like a parental level, like knowing that your kid after pondering and hearing all these prophecies, like that's a lot of responsibility. I'm already absolutely terrified of parenting. Gotta <laughs> mm-hmm. want that responsibility. Yeah, but if you weren't, it would be weird if you weren't. If you, it, it, what would be weird, Nat, is if you're like, I've got this dialed in. You know, and actually, I don't know what it's like for you as being a parent, Carmen, but when people come in and make suggestions about parenting that have no kids because they've got it all dialed in, that's that's (laughs) (laughs) I'm never somebody that wants to go Old Testament eye for an eye. But in those moments, I kind of do. It's like not turn the other cheek moment. I really. So because I'm a step parent. Yeah. Yeah. I am probably always the most hesitant and the most reticent. Okay, that's fair. Right. Yeah. Um, And and acknowledging that um, choices are made in parenting. Uh, in people's past yeah, that cannot be undone. Yeah, it's really true, right? And so I'm probably, you know, I'm probably uh, both overly cautious and totally reckless. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, and Nat, what is your biggest fear then about this? The parents You can't thing? mess them up, by the way. They're going to be who God created them to be. I guess that's like, I don't want the responsibility of someone else's life like 100% in my hands. It's called a sacred trust. God, you're not alone. I mean, you're like in alone, Christ, right. right? You're not alone. Yeah. 
Uh, right. but, the, but the joy and wonder of it, Nat, for, for the, the journey of it, it's worth it. It's worth the fear. It's We're worth not the trying turmoil. to talk you into having babies. <laughs> yeah. Like I would <laughs> say, Nat, actually, your life is. would be an utter failure if you don't have a kid within five years. So I know that <laughs> Thanks, you, you know, so it just <laughs> you got, you have to have a plan for your life, Nat. Is this, this where you want to have the conversation that women are sh- saved through childbearing? Because I think that is something that should be plumbed. Since I've never had a baby, I think we should go there. I just I literally <laughs> just talked about this in my class yesterday. Fantastic. And we should till the we soil. We didn't go there. <laughs> in my class and because honestly I have looked at that passage around the block it's a mystery so right it, it, I do not see a, a explanation just yet that I feel comfortable teaching about and all the passages even before about adorning and jewels and women teaching and all that stuff those for me we can sort those out the women being saved in childbearing thing no idea that's okay. good. That's yeah. good. Captain, I was in your class, and I don't remember this. That's what, what I'm saying. That's because he chose about? not to go there. <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> That's because I don't know how to teach it, Nat. <laughs> That's so, because he avoided it. There's a passage in Timothy where it, it says, but women will be saved through the birthing of children. And, and there is a connection. And let to me the, just go ahead and say, it is used in a very painful way. Well, it's horrible. In, toward those of us who've never had our own biological it children. Is, I'm sure. Horrible. Yeah. And the reality is, is that there is it. They're referencing creation in those moments, and so there's a clear tie-in to Eve being named as Eve because that means mother of the living. Right. And so Paul is referencing something back to creation and what is birthed through Eve that helps restore the realities of the fall of sin. It's not about women needing to have children in order to get into heaven. I, you know, I'm sure that there are more than a few <laughs> pastors that have preached some ridiculous thing along those lines, but this is a clear reference to something back in the garden with Eve, but I haven't been able to sort out all the pieces of it enough to teach it yet. But I'm pretty sure, Carmen, that um, you might still get into if heaven. If I'm not going to heaven, yeah, it's I was, not I, because I would of say that. You, and I, you, you and I and Nat are going to hang for a bit uh, <laughs> in eternity. So yeah, <laughs> let's just say that. Well, back, to, back to Christmas yeah, so if we can just do O Holy Night and then Absolutely. maybe some of the Christmas characters even too. I think, um, I don't know which lines for the song stand out for you, but I think what has been most meaningful for my own journey, especially getting older and realizing that heaven is probably, well, in fact, it certainly is closer than it was even just yesterday. Although we is, have discussed the possibility that you are the exemplar transhumanist. And <laughs> well, that's so, really true. That's all, <laughs> that's you know what? what? Could we tell that on another yeah, episode? Yeah, we definitely okay. have to get into that. Yeah, yeah no, it's <laughs> it's pretty, it's okay. I am the missing link between common <laughs> humanity and what is coming. So that we know. Um, but, <laughs> oh dear. Uh, the thrill of hope, a weary world rejoicing is, I don't know that I can sing that line without tears because... You know, you, obviously one of the things people would tell me when I was growing up, as you get older, things stop working as well. You get tired, you get sore. Like you just, you just know, and you get weary. I mean, I am, my body is already wearier than I want it to be. And I'm only 49. And so let's say I live to 90. If God gives me that kind of time, I can't imagine how weary my body is going to feel in those moments. And I have somebody very close to me right now going through chemotherapy and how weary this person is as they're fighting off sort of the mutation of the cells when things aren't working right anymore. And so when the thrill of hope comes right into the midst of that weariness of, uh, it's, it's sort of the heart of the gospel for me is the idea that there is hope and there is future that even though you die yet you live. And so I know that the song is about a weary world that had been not hearing the voice of God for 400 years. And suddenly they do And a thrill of hope, a weary world rejoices. But I think in a, in a world that is broken in a world that we'll never experience the fullness of the shalom that we want, that thrill of hope that comes from our future into our present, that's the sustainable hope in, in this journey. So that's the the line of the song that drives me to tears. I That hands down is my favorite line. And it's beautiful. And that's exactly what, uh, you know, what 
we're looking for in a tired world. Yeah, and it's unique to the Christian witness, right? I mean, the idea that your future can crash at least in part into your present to pull you through the present towards your future is a very, very unique right. premise in any world religion. And, uh, and the idea that we get a deposit of our future inheritance in that hope uh, is something that I think we just don't always understand at the heart of the gospel. So, Carmen, you referenced that this is a song you really enjoy, too. Are there other parts of it for you? No, I think you have hit upon the line. Mm. <clears throat> absolutely, the thrill of hope um, and this weary world rejoicing. Um, a- absolutely. Um, as you were as you were sharing just about your own experience of not only a growing weariness, but the recognition that there's more weariness yet to come, yeah. right? Yep. So the, the renewal that we experience in the Christian life um, internally— is not always reflected externally. Like I think the way Paul mm-hmm. describes it is this outer, mm-hmm. right? This this tent that I'm can, living yep. in, right, is wasting away. Mm-hmm. And yet the inner man is being renewed day by day. Yeah. I do um I do hope that for myself. I do hope that as a disciple of Jesus Christ, there's a sweetness that grows over time. Mm. Um that even as yeah. the outer man is wasting away, the inner, you know, this this sweet relationship, this sweet fellowship that I'm cultivating with the Lord is actually going to grow more and more and more. Um, it makes me particularly sad to see older people yes. who have stopped growing in yes, their Carmen. faith. They got to a particular point. I don't know if the last time they really went to, to Sunday school was in high school, yeah. um, but they're not in the word and they're not rejoicing in in their old age. They they don't have a sweet fellowship with the Lord. I don't understand it. I don't. They they're literally wasting time yeah. as they are wasting away. There may be nothing that grieves me quite as deeply as that. Um, particularly as I sort of move into uh, you know a stage of life where more and more of my friends are retiring. Yep. And they're retiring to what? I, exactly. I mean, to what? Crossword puzzles and golf, you know. I, yeah, that just, can't be. I that can't just be. can't be. I mean, right. uh, if we're gonna if we're going to retire to crossword puzzles, mm-hmm. let us retire to the crossword puzzle yeah. of the world, uh, totally where agree. we bring the where we bring the word of God to bear mm-hmm. and the cross to bear on the puzzle that is our current cultural reality. Yeah, I yeah. Totally but agree. golf, no, no, probably not. <laughs> well, and I know we just have a short time, but it just calls to mind um, when my mentor passed away. Uh, she was, there was very little left to look at from a physical standpoint. And yet as Hallie and I sat in the room with her those last couple of days, you could, you could feel the beauty that was just waiting to escape that, that inner person that had been being renewed day by day. Cause she walked that journey out to the end. It, it just couldn't wait for its release into its final place. Well, thanks for listening to this episode of The Till. It's been great to be with the two of you. Merry Hope Christmas. you have a great Merry Christmas. Yeah. Christmas celebration. And happy up. holiday. I, I say both. I'm I a fan it. of both. I get it. Well, also, Peter, you've been overseas a bit. So I is have. it Merry Christmas or Happy, happy Christmas. Christmas? It is. Thank you. It's Happy Christmas, and I feel right at home right now. The Till is produced by me, Nat Becker, hosted by Dr. Peter Kapsner and Carmen LaBerge. And you can find us every Wednesday morning in your podcast feed.